So the fight, I think, between Web 2 and Web 3 becomes, can Web 2 basically steal all the best ideas of Web 3 except for the redistribution of the ownership, right? And that's the fight. That's the fight, right? And, you know, for example, in gaming, right, in Web 3 gaming, the players own the game. In Web 2 gaming, the game owns the players, right? So, like, I think that that's a very simple framing. But I think that, you know, we would love to create and build a future where people own the services that they use. Hi, Miko. Welcome to the Open Metaverse podcast. Yeah, it's great to be here. Miko, just to kick things off, can you tell our audience a little bit about yourself and the origin story behind CryptoGummies? Yeah, absolutely. So, uh, you know, it's pretty simple stuff. So if you, uh, I've been here in Silicon Valley for about 30 years or so. Uh, I got my start in developer tools. So uh, I actually worked on the Java programming language team at a company called Sun Microsystems. So this was back in like the 1990s, right? So it's definitely like the birth of the first consumer internet. So I've been uh, kind of kicking around Silicon Valley for a while, you know, really got involved in developer platforms and open source software. So, you know, really developer tools guy. Um, one of the things that happened with the origin of my fund is that uh, there used to be, uh, still is actually a publicly traded mobile gaming company called Gumi, uh, based in Japan. So this is actually created by my partner, uh, Hero Now, and he basically has launched, I think, three game-focused venture funds, a dedicated um, XR, which is VR, AR fund. Uh, so he has one of those, and Mixed Reality, which is the new thing, right? And then, uh, obviously, the uh, we're actually working on the second blockchain fund. So we actually launched... Uh, in 2018 uh, blockchain fund uh, actually uh, hero now and my partner Ray actually were the founders and then they came looking for a US partner based in Silicon Valley you know uh, and and I I was a good fit for that role so you know so I joined them pretty early on um, and we started making uh, investments you know so I think just to make a long story short you know tying it back to kind of things like open metaverse, you know, we led a, one of the seed rounds into OpenSea very early. Uh, you know, we were part of the seed rounds within uh, YGG or Yield Guild games. Uh, so a number of, you know, we definitely having ha my partner having had this sort of profound background within the gaming arena has a very strong appreciation for the metaverse. You know, obviously he has invested in you know, VR and AR, including, you know, titles like Beat Saber and things like that. So he's definitely like knowledgeable about almost everything metaversal, you know, including blockchain. So, you know, I think for me, I'm blockchain only, you know, the Gumi Cryptos Fund is blockchain only, you know, so my partner has knowledge. So we, we're able to do gaming things. We're able to do, you know, other things, but, you know, I think the fund itself is, it's not a game fund. It's not a, you know, any other kind of a fund. It's it's really a blockchain fund. Excellent, Miko. We, we'll talk about conversion between crypto, mixed reality, AI in a bit. But before I touch that, um, I, I remember we were speaking a few days earlier regarding a mass adoption of Web3. So in your view, what are some of the vectors that or the pathways that will allow Web3 to basically go viral? Basically, everybody gets onboarded. Like, what are some of those vectors, in your opinion? Yeah, so the thing that's been fascinating is actually watching the fits and starts. And what I mean by watching the fits and starts is that when you look at a technology that's basically almost like pure communication tech. So if you look at the birth of the early internet, right? In a sense, there was this kind of fairly clean boom and bust, right? So the, the what I mean by the clean boom and bust is that really that there was an internet bubble right? So there's an internet boom cycle, right? There is, you know, hundreds of crazy applications, right? There were these crazy applications like um, pets.com, right? Which has had a kind of a pet that was a sock puppet, 
you know, and they put an advertisement on the Super Bowl, right? And of course, pets.com failed, right? And there was another crazy one called Webvan. And their idea was, what if you could order your groceries on the internet and they would be delivered to your house? Like, you know, what a crazy idea, right? That failed, right? So, you know, it was too early, obviously, uh, you know, but there were other crazy companies like Amazon, Google, Facebook, you know, all these things popping up, LinkedIn, you know, and the rest is kind of what I would say is history, right? Very clean boom, very clean bust, right? And it turned out that in those eras, in the birth of the consumer internet, the bust cycle was the cycle that created the Amazons and the Googles and the right. So the, the you think it was the boom that created it, right? But really it was the bust that created the biggest megacorps, you know, in the world. The thing that I think is incredibly complex about mass adoption in Web3 is that there are fits and starts, right? And one of the weird things is, <clears throat> is that the crypto cycle is tied to Bitcoin and it's tied to the Bitcoin halving cycle, which is a four-year cycle, right? So it's a very, very weird kind of more foreshortened boom and bust cycle. So it doesn't create as clean of a like boom, bust, boom. Right. It's much more kind of janky and, you know, it's, it's a little faster paced. Right. I don't think it's inappropriate because I do think that it's fast. But the thing that I think is a little weird about it is the effect on infrastructure. Right. Which is that it generally doesn't take four years to build infrastructure. It generally takes 10 years to build infrastructure. So what's happened is, is that so, for example, when you think about how dominant Ethereum is. Right. One of the reasons why is the kind of elegance of this kind of L1, L2 structure, which is that you consolidate in one cycle, you consolidate your L1, you know, by doing something like converting it from proof of work to proof of stake, right? So that's a consolidation. And then you basically move things like venture investment up into L2. So now L2 is getting investment, right? So it's a much weirder broken up thing. And the reason why I'm kind of talking about it in this way is that the other thing that's been incredibly janky about this development has been that the boom and bust cycle also correlates with things like fraud and scams, right? Which is that there obviously there were fraud within the consumer internet, right? Like there's the famous, you know, Nigerian prince email scam and there's there's many famous internet scams, right? So, you know, but the magnitude, the depth, the size, the scope, the greed, the kind of Trick, trickiness, right? Like, you know, the, sort of the SBF class of scam, you know, is so big, right? And that obviously produces a huge setback, right? So, you know, so in a sense, like, you know, in reflecting on mass adoption, you know, and getting back to your original question, right? What are the vectors, right? So, you know, in a sense, like, we were hoping for things like a consumer mass adoption vector, right? But the problem with the consumer mass adoption vector is, is that consumers can be defrauded pretty uh, scalably, right? So that's been tough, right? So in a sense, the next vector that we're thinking and the catalyst we're thinking on the financial services side is probably institutional regulated adoption. So we see, uh, you know, companies like BlackRock that are getting involved in things like Bitcoin spot ETF applications with the SEC, right? So we're seeing kind of ultra high quality so-called real world assets, you know, being, and I hate the term real world assets. And I think that um, generally when you hear it, you're, you're hearing about ultra low quality real, real world assets, right? When I talk about real world, world assets, I'm really talking about principally things like, uh, stable coins, so financial trading. And then I think the other killer applications there are things like uh, treasuries, government treasuries, like US treasuries, right? So Ondo finance types of, uh, you know, assets, right? So ultra, ultra high quality assets, right? And then I think those form natural trading pairs with uh, Bitcoin. Uh, so I would say that like, uh, I think regulated finance becomes a huge catalyst because there are giant pools of institutional wealth that, that want exposure to this asset class, right? Obviously that requires KYC. It requires kind of uh, better identity systems, right? So there's still infrastructure that needs completion, but like, you know, that's a big catalyst. The other one that I think is possibly also very strong is something like gaming. Uh, so, you know, I'm a big fan of gaming. You know, I, I, I spoke uh, with Neil Stevenson who wrote Snow Crash and coined the term metaverse you know i asked him point blank i was like what is a metaverse 
because I was curious to hear what his opinion was. And he didn't actually bite, but he did say the metaverse has to be fun, right? That was his little whack at it. And I feel like when you look at Microsoft, you know, they're making a huge investment to buy Activision Blizzard. And in a sense, you know, when you look at the pattern of the investment of the company, they know what VR is, right? They invested in a HoloLens, right? So, so Microsoft has, they have the intellectual firepower to launch a headset, but they chose not to, right? And their attitude towards the metaverse is, oh, it's World of Warcraft or, you know, like it's a, their, you know, Starcraft or whatever. They're, the, all of their mindset is very wrapped around Activision, Blizzard, you know, and gaming, right? So I think, you know, Stevenson and Microsoft agree that the metaverse is really like sort of has to be fun. So Miko, directionally, I would agree with you. Um, with regards to treasury, I feel like the TAM over there is even bigger than US, US dollars. And and we have seen Stables achieve amazing product market fit. Like it's one application, like close your eye, you know this is the product that has achieved achieved that. And I would even go as far as saying maybe 60-70% of the project that even launch a token, they do not necessarily need a token. They can have a SaaS business with with, with stables, right? So real quality, real world asset, I, I definitely agree with you on that. And also interesting thing about gamers is they are one of those personas out there that basically even if, if they like something, they're able they, they will be willing to uh, go through the hoops. They will be willing to endure all the user friction that's at the moment comes with yeah with with, with, with Web three friction right. Uh, I remember I used to play uh, Pokemon as a, a, on my PC through an emulator. Like you, the gamers can do weird stuff and 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 walk yeah. Yes. Yeah. So they will tolerate a yes. lot. Yes. Um. So, so that that, that uh, Miko, that just got me thinking. Um. So we since all of us are in crypto. Um, do you do you envision a world where Web three and Web two coexist? Will there be an inevitable shift? Will will there be a web, can they thrive in peril? I know one of your thesis when yes. we were discussing was applications that coexist or co-opt with with Web two and, and and Web three like coexisting. So here's a fascinating thing, right? Which is that when you really really scrutinize Web three, the thing that becomes Kind of the question is, you know, your question evokes a definitional concern, right? Which is that what what's the baby and what's the bathwater of Web3, right? In other words, like to me, the beating heart of Web3 is really tokenization and it is decentralization, right? So it's a distribution of that token to different hands than what, you know, uh, the SEC typically regulates, right? Which is stocks, right? Equities and these types of things, securities essentially, right? So if you look at traditional securities, the distribution pattern of securities is, oh, are you a stockholder, right? So essentially there's this concept of like, the stockholders are owners of the business, right? And as the owners are the beneficiaries, right? So the thing that's interesting about tokenization is that tokenization sort of potentially redistributes the principles of ownership, whether that be governance over the means of production, right, or whether it means kind of just being a pure economic beneficiary, you know, of the activity of the network, right? So I guess to me, the thing that's fascinating about all those things is that it seems blatantly obvious to everyone, even Gary Gensler, that Bitcoin is not a security as a function of kind of really massive decentralization, right? So, you know, so I guess what I would say is that, you know, we already have an extant example of a utility that's effectively a, you know, economic value storage mechanism, right, that that functions, you know, in a fully decentralized way. So, you know, is tokenization and decentralization here to stay? It is, right? But the thing that becomes really a key question is, like, how essential are those elements to kind of the go forward plan. Because one of the things I see here is when you look at Web 2, right? Web 2 is sort of failing miserably, right? Like, like for example, I'll give you examples, right? So Mark Zuckerberg doesn't want to run a company called Facebook, right? Uh, he wants to run one called Meta, right? And it turns out that Jack Dorsey doesn't want to run a company called Twitter. He wants to run one called Block, right? And it turns out that Elon Musk doesn't want to run a company called Twitter either. <laughs> you know, he wants to run one called X, right? So like the point is, is that all of the architects of Web2 are sort of running away from their creation, 
right? Because they're broken and ugly, right? They're they're not working, right? So Web two is not serving people. I think the, the destructive. We've reached the very end of advertising driven internet, right? Where we're just at the end, right? And so the the thing that I love what you were saying about things like SaaS, and I love what you were saying about things like how regulated, government recognized, bank recognized stable coins can be used to create not only just SaaS, but when you think about it, it's really about the API economy, right? Which is that, you know, ultimately what will happen is, is that, you know, probably the majority of commerce in the world is going to be B2B. And in fact, I think the purchasing decisions are probably going to be made by AIs, right? And so the AIs will be paying other AIs, right? And so the question is, what are they using? What are they using to pay each other, right? And to me, when you look at the older paradigm of API economy, they used to have this thing called the web services gateway, right? The web services gateway would take care of authentication. You would call the API, like a REST API, right? And well, what happened is, is that there'd be some kind of a bot who's responsible for counting the API calls, right? And then sending you a bill to your accounts receivable, accounts payable, right? Department and say, oh, you owe us for the amount of API that you used, right? But like, and then you would pay in US dollars on net 30, right? All of that is just unnecessary, right? Like what, what you want is you want machines kind of having in-band payment, right? So I guess what I'm really poking at is, is I think you're, the thing that's exciting is, is that like, you know, beyond SaaS, right? Because SaaS is really the idea of like human to machine online service that you pay for, right? So the thing that's really interesting becomes, well, what about machine to machine and all these other kind of configurations? But what I really wanted to kind of point at is, is that this kind of thing can also be co-opted, right? So the co-optation becomes, you know, gee, is Elon Musk going to add non-crypto payments to his system? He will, right? Is he going to add creator incentives to his platform that are sort of helping the creator economy? He will, right? So basically, is he going to add end-to-end encryption to all of his d- direct messages? He will, right? So like, so the point is, is that like, you know, is it possible that the Web2 people will steal all the best ideas of Web3, but leave tokenization and decentralization out, right? So that's the, so in a sense, like I'm going to argue that the tokenization and decentralization and the redistribution of the ownership is the baby, right? And a lot of the other things could be bathwater. You could throw them out, right? But but in a sense, the thing, so the fight, I think, between Web 2 and Web 3 becomes, can Web 3, can Web 2 basically steal all the best ideas of Web 3 except for the redistribution of the ownership, right? And that's the fight. That's the fight, right? And I think the sort of Web3 purists are like, we'd like the ownership to be redistributed. Like we would like users to become owner, like, you know, and and not to be owned, right? So the, the quip that I like to say is like, you know, for example, in gaming, right? In Web3 gaming, the players own the game. In Web2 gaming, the game owns the players, right? So like, I think that that's a very simple framing, but I think that, you know, we would love to create and build a future where people own the services that they use, right? And and because to me, that ownership is so deep, right? Because when you go back to Warren Buffett, you know, he says things other than Bitcoin is rat poison. You know, he says things like invest in things that you know, right? So the thing that's really interesting is, is people know the services that they use, right? So why should they not be investors in the services that they use? And why should they not be stakeholders? Why should they not have governance, right? Why should they not be a beneficiary of the growth of the things that they've invested their time and expertise into? So that's that's my impassioned plea for let's let's redistribute ownership and let's continue to go down the path of decentralization. Exactly, Miko. That's why that's why we're here, right? That's why that's why I'm here. Um, uh, and and funny story, I, I recently, like a few days ago, like sold some of my ETFs that I own because I wasn't following the market. And I basically took that money and invested in a few L1s because I know with those L1s, I can validate the network and take participation in that network by securing it. And and I, I like those networks because I use it on, let's say, a bi-weekly basis. So I exactly resonate uh, what, you're, what, you, what you're saying there. Uh, on, on top of that, I was also having this argument uh, with my friend, I think, a couple of weeks ago, where I was trying to make the argument that some of the features of Web3 are are actually not a bug, they are, they're a feature. So for example, if you look at 
current business model, uh, they rely a lot on advertisements. And 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 given the DEXs we have, given the take rate we have, when we interact with every DAP, I think those businesses are amazing for AI because an advertisement model just wouldn't recognize how many AIs are there, how many humans are there. And this this bug became a feature, right? This bug became a feature where uh, the take rates we have actually allows us not to only be sustainable, but also kind of future-proofs ourselves with machine-to-machine transactions and machine-to-machine uh, revenue generation. Yeah, I definitely love thinking about sort of the future of the space because I do think AIs are going to be ever more prevalent. Tell me about uh, your perspective on the kind of AI revolution and how it sort of impacts uh, Web3. So, so my view, um, yeah, very, very interesting. The way I'm at least thinking about this right now is I, I don't feel like I have the edge. And the best way for me at least to kind of play this is to kind of invest the shovels of it. So I feel like um, the AI model training, um, it will require exponential compute requirements. So so as as, as more people train AI, either for, and even for inferences, the, the requirement for compute is going to be massive. And, and there, there is going to be verticalization where um, each player, even incumbents, will try to specialize in one domain. So I think there is a opportunity in terms of AI and crypto playing a big role through things like decentralized compute. So that's one area I think intellectually I'm very, very fascinated by. The other area I'm fascinated by is how to give AI agents a wallet. And what I just described, the AI agent through account abstraction, maybe through the new NFT standards, ERC standards, your AI is actually a wallet. And it, it, there's uh, one. There's tremendous work being done uh, around that at uh, Lit Protocol, right? So Lit Pro- Protocol has kind of programmatic key management through multi-party computation, right? So in a sense, they're kind of building sort of a, you know really like a HashiCorp vault system for the decentralized system for for kind of key management, right? So the thing that's super interesting is how programmatic it is, right? So you know, I agree with you that account abstraction is definitely the meta pattern, right? But the the idea becomes that if you can reposit the key, right, then you can absolutely give the AI's wallets, right? Which is, I think, super fascinating to to understand what can be built, right? Because at that point, the AI's can start kind of doing really, really interesting things. They can buy services from each other. They can buy compute and storage. They can start executing and delivering value, you know, and they can start kind of playing uh, economic and commercial games, you know, which I think is, is quite fascinating. Um, Miko, for our audience, can you demystify what is MPC? Yeah, 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 absolutely. So MPC is pretty simple. It's this concept of uh, so-called multi-party computation, right? So, you know, one of the really interesting use cases, so there's multiple use cases for it, right? But one of the use cases really becomes this kind of idea of key management, right? Which is that effectively the problem of multi-party computation is really simple, which is basically that you want multiple participants to effectively participate in a compute function, right, uh, in a trusted way. So the compute function can actually be something that involves things like key sharding, right? So that's a that's a particularly useful, you know, so that that really becomes this paradigm that enables you to do things around privacy and around security, you know, and, and create uh, sort of multi-signature, you know, patterns, you know, so you can create lots of really interesting custodial patterns that I think are needed, right? Because I think right now there's sort of this concept of like binary custody, right? So binary is basically like, well, you have to decide whether you want self-custody, in which case you run the risk of losing the key forever, right? Or, right, or or being hacked, right? So you have to be the best custodian, right? Or you d- rely on someone else's custody, you know, typically an institution, right? And if you rely on their custody, then you can also be really hosed, right? Whereas like the use of something like multi-party computation will actually allow uh, the key to be sort of broken into pieces, right? And when you combine the pieces, then you can, you know, then have, uh, you know, rights, you can establish kind of a complex pattern of rights and access controls, right? So that that becomes exciting. I think one of the cautionary tales in MPC is that the uh, 
there's there's two layers. Like one layer is the idea of um, compromise of an individual system, right? But the, which is an individual wallet. And I think, but the other one is really potentially the most dangerous, which is compromise of the entire MPC system, right? So like MPC systems often require sort of themselves a master key that they use to encrypt and encode uh, all user keys, right? So it, a, a lot of times this has to do with this kind of concept of a summoning ritual or this concept of a secure ritual, right? That allows for things like randomness generated from lots of different users to sort of, uh, people call this like a ceremony, right? So the idea becomes that if the initial random numbers are non-random, right, then you can potentially compromise everything on the MPC network, right? So I, I think that's that's a that's a vulnerability. So I, I think, you know, obviously it isn't the panacea. That's probably the largest scale uh, cryptographic attack on MPC is basically compromising the uh, summoning ritual. But, uh, you know, but I would say that, like, we're going to need solutions like this, right? Because I think pure end-user custody is sort of provably not good. I think Bitcoin has had major millions of Bitcoins lost, I think, reported. So it's, a, it's difficult to say the exact number, but we definitely know that there's millions of lost Bitcoins, which is a staggering uh, amount. And Miko, earlier you highlighted some fascinating use cases, like especially on access control. And I think Lit Protocol is also introducing this thing called Lit Action. So perhaps this could be an opportunity where we talk a few of your few, few portfolio companies like Lit Protocol, like how they're using MPC and perhaps Credo as well. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, we see uh, MPC as a pretty big thesis for us, you know, the utility of it, you know, as a cryptographic primitive. So we are invested in Lit Protocol. Uh, we all, uh, we see actually Lit Protocol being very, very kind of developer focused. So there's tons of applications that are now being built on top of Lit Protocol and getting all of the really complex uh, use cases around custody, you know, essentially for free from the Lit Protocol network. So, you know, if you're a developer, I definitely encourage you to check it out. Uh, they're doing a wonderful partnership uh, with Collabland, which uh, allows for kind of things like Discord wallets and Telegram wallets and kind of really, you know, very, very simple and user-friendly wallet paradigms, right? So I think that's exciting. I think the uh, frontier that we describe also includes institutional custody, which is a very separate use case, which we think is well handled by Credo Networks. We were the first external check in Credo. And, you know, they their approach is that, as I mentioned, this concept of access control and complex access control, you know, things like financial institutions actually have really interesting use cases like around-the-clock trading. So around-the-clock trading basically becomes, oh, well, we have a key that provides access to trading, and during certain business hours, you know, it rotates to London and then it rotates to Hong Kong and then it rotates to New York, you know. And so like these kinds of institutional use cases are really, really interesting, you know. And obviously there's things like risk management frameworks, right? So there's things like, oh, well, you know, uh, if you look at the uh, rogue trader, Nick Leeson, you know, he destroyed the multi-hundred-year-old Barings Bank, uh, you know, through just trading and doubling down, right? So he had unlimited risk exposure, right? So there are institutional use cases where it's sort of like, oh, no trader can exceed X risk threshold and, you know, this kind of thing, right? So like there's a lot of really cool computational access control paradigms you can build that are sort of institutional use cases on top of multi-party computation, right? The other thing that's really fascinating is, is that if you have the key to a wallet, you can actually create a almost like a layer two on top, right? Where you can actually take a wallet, like let's say you take a wallet with one Bitcoin in it, right? Basically passing one of the MPC key shards around basically gives you a internet wire speed way to transmit essentially what's a legal bearer instrument, right? So then the person produces the bearer instrument and says, hey, I'm the rightful holder of this key fragment Right. And then what happens is, is that that key fragment holder can then produce appropriate KYC that enables them to withdraw the asset. Right. So, so it's what happens is then you have additional stakeholders that need to multi-sign in order to get the funds out. Right. So, so it, it's a very cool uh, kind of uh, institutional and regulated use case. Right. So I, I guess what I'm describing is, is that 
you know, when you look at institutional custody, uh, you know, Credo's super interesting use of multi-party computation. You know, uh, we also see uh, privacy use cases for MPC. Uh, one of them is we invested in is called Keyless, and Keyless actually does a decentralized biometric authentication. Uh, so whether it's a face ID or whether it's a fingerprint, thumbprint, you know, these kinds of things, these biometric measurements, I think, are super sensitive because if an adversary steals your fingerprint, right, they can actually reproduce the output of a device that's reading your finger, right? So if they're able to reproduce that output, then it becomes, you know, they've effectively stolen your biometric identity, right? Obviously, there's lots of safeguards. You can have things like uh, readers that have their own private keys, right? So if you have an embedded fingerprint reader in your phone, you know, it's likely interacting with a security chip, you know, so there's definitely like safeguards. But to me, the thing that is the biggest threat is if you have a biometric database and somebody steals all the biometrics, right? So one of the cool things about multi-party computation is that it enables you to decentralize the storage of biometrics. Uh, so, you know, in a sense, this is a pretty exciting frontier, you know, especially as we start to see AI bots appearing by the billion, right? So as, as billions of AI bot, bots flood the network, we see an increased need for civil resistance and kind of a proof of humanness. This is stuff that I think WorldCoin, which we're not invested in, uh, it seems to be addressing through their kind of uh, iris scanning uh, methodology. We don't actually have a high degree of confidence that a kind of effectively proprietary stack eyeball reader will compete effectively with things like Apple Face ID or, you know, the things like the Android, you know, fingerprint and Face ID system. Uh, so, Miko, apart from MPC, ZK Tech has also been kind of in, in the foray for privacy. What, what are your thoughts on that? Like how, how you kind of bisected these two big cryptographic primitives? Yeah, yeah. So the thing that's really interesting about zero knowledge, right, is that if you kind of scratch the surface of this idea of zero knowledge proof, right, the thing that becomes interesting is, is you run into kind of this simple mathematical proof uh, called the millionaire's problem. I won't go into it now, but it's really a simple idea that what's happening is, is people are wanting to get answers without revealing the information, right? So this is a pretty interesting thing because it spawns multiple use cases, right? I would say that the two killer applications on the zero knowledge uh, uh, side are, I think, first and foremost, the idea of building uh, cross-chain proofs, right? So cross-chain proofs are pretty exciting because it helps to solve fundamental problems around scalability, right? So I described earlier the Ethereum L1, L2, right? So, the, you know, a couple of really powerful paradigms for acceleration of infrastructure related to blockchain, you know, on-chain transactions, right? Obviously, one of them is this very simple paradigm of optimism, right? And optimism is more like a credit card, which is sort of like, okay, well, we have risk that transactions are fraudulent, but we also have sort of slashing and staking mechanisms that can kind of protect us from these smaller risks, right? So that's sort of a, a optimism. But when you look at the other kind of major classes of rollups that provide performance, right? Zero Z, ZK rollups are actually, you know, producers of mathematical proofs of the state of stuff that is off chain, right? So people describe kind of cross chain and they describe L1, L2 relationships, right? All of that stuff is effectively um, transferring state from one chain to another chain, right? Uh, you know, one chain that's called an L2 you know, to a chain that's called L1, right? And so that that cross-chain state proof becomes sort of a bread and butter. And a lot of those state proofs are zero-knowledge proofs. I think the other class of things that I think have have been fruitful in, in the frontier of zero-knowledge zero proofs, obviously, are the identity and privacy applications, right? Because you do want to you can do things like, uh, you know, prove that you're over 18 without revealing your birthday. You know, these are these are the most kind of simple, obvious, primitive ones. But I do think that the more sophisticated ones are kind of preventing large corporations from doing data theft, right? And uh, you know, uh, coming up with 
sort of ways to uh, preserve people's privacy, but at the same time deliver them viable services like AI, you know, so you can protect people's data, you know, and you can use ZK proofs to sort of uh, ensure that people are doing the right things, even though they may not be able to tell you exactly what it is that they're doing for usually commercial reasons. So, Miko, uh, I think you guys have invested in one of the projects called Lagrange, which is doing ZK-based cross-chain yes. communication. Is, is, that, is, yes. is that so? Yes. So, we're investors in Lagrange, and like Lagrange is, is very, very exciting. Uh, you know, they're using very, very sophisticated cryptographic mechanisms to develop multi-chain oracles, right? So, they're able to prove state uh, simultaneously across multiple chains, right? Which I think creates really, really exciting applications around things like decentralized exchange, multi-chain price discovery. You know, there's all kinds of really, really interesting applications that arise once you have ultra-reliable cross-chain, right? So the thing that I think people are wondering is they're wondering about things like uh, the diversity of blockchain. Right. And I think one of the things that Lagrange is pursuing is a world of integration. Right. So I think in a world of integration, it means that multiple blockchains can happily coexist. Right. Because you can really rely on uh, sort of what happens is obviously you create this kind of cryptographic proof driven chain of chains. Right. So I think that's an exciting uh, future. Um, Obviously, there's other extant efforts to create a chain of chains like Cosmos IBC, you know, but they really rely on very different principles. And I think the Lagrange approach is exciting because it really has to do with emerging cryptographic math, right? So it has to do with really bleeding edge stuff. Uh, their uh, chief scientist, Professor Batis from Yale University, is very well published on sort of deep tech cryptography. So, you know, he's definitely advancing you know, the whole field and, and is really contributing uh, richly to the uh, field of cross-chain proof. Yeah, this is one of the reasons I love crypto. Like different folks are working on kind of similar problem, but like different approaches. I've seen MPC being used for cross-chain communication. Now we're seeing ZK. We're also seeing like, I think with layer zero, there's an Oracle and a Relayer and a kind of like different mechanisms altogether. So one thing that just keeps me excited about the space new problems being solved with like new innovative way and that's what keeps me um yeah that yeah that's what fascinates me about the whole space yeah it's a it's fun because you know in a sense like we really have to kind of keep our eyes on these emerging capabilities right which is that you know it's fascinating to see how the academic world of cryptography has sort of advanced and how these new advancements right because when you think about this idea of like zero knowledge proofs right like they've definitely been there's a wonderful kind of tutorial from mit where you can prove that you can successfully identify uh where's waldo game you know so you can definitely indicate that you know where waldo is and you can prove that you know where waldo is without without giving away where Waldo is, you know, and, and that, that's a cute game. But I think the thing that's fascinating about this is, is that what's happening on the internet is the birth of a new creature, which is the AIs, right? And so the thing that I think is amazing when you start to look at things like deep fake videos, you start to look at things like uh, distributed denial of services, you think about botnets, like you think about kind of fake users, uh, you know, I uh, think things like, you know, Elon Musk made a big deal about fake Twitter users, you know. So when you start thinking about the prevalence of fakeness, right, I think AI is going to exponentially lower the cost of fakeness, you know. So I think that what happens with AI is that the counteracting force at some level is cryptography, right? That cryptography contributes realness, right? Because the idea of a cryptographic proof is what makes you sure that what you're seeing is real right and the thing that becomes really really interesting is is that if you can create a set of reliable mechanisms of that involve cryptographic proof right then at least you can kind of reverse engineer a rationale for believing in things you know because i think you know over the years you know things like social media have just gotten worse and worse and worse in terms of 
can I believe something that I'm seeing, right? And I think today the deepfake video technology is definitely sort of proven that there are things that you can see that look real that never happened, right? So so that that's a very disturbing state actually, right? Because, you know, anything that's online, you can question it. You can say that's not real, right? And I don't know, that's a fairly degenerate state for society, right? So I, I'd love to see the emergence of strong cryptographic proofs. A lot of the proofs of whether something is real or not are proofs that involve attestation. I still think that there's some reasonable attestations. Like, for example, you could have cryptographic signing at the level of the cell phone manufacturer, right? So you can say like, well, the Apple private key has certified that this, this photo hasn't changed and the data of this photo hasn't changed since it was taken, right? It's, you know, we have a cryptographic signature from the uh, atomic clock at Lawrence Livermore Laboratory that attests to the time that this was taken, right? And we have... Uh, you know, we've taken a hash of this photo where we've actually placed it on this public blockchain, right? And so it's immutable, right? So like we can now look at this photo and be like, well, we think it was taken from this specific iPhone, right? It's signed by the iPhone, right? It's uh, the, the timestamp is signed by the atomic clock. Like, you know, so it's sort of like, could a state actor like the United States falsify that? Like with a backdoor, like possibly, right? But like, that's a high level threat actor, right? Like, you know, so the question becomes, you know, and we can get into conspiracy theories, right? I mean, we could obviously be like, oh, well, that photo of like, you know, that photo was doctored by the FBI or whatever, you know, NSA. And, and you know, obviously the question becomes, well, what's the, what's the burden of the proof, right? Like if it's a picture of your dog, you know, and it's like, oh, your dog is okay. See, here's a picture, right? Like, you know, you're like all oh, the NF the NSA backdoored the photo. Like it's sort of I don't know. I guess I'm saying that there's a there's there's levels of conspiracy, right? Like extraordinary claims require extraordinary proofs, right? So I guess what I'm trying to say is that like, you know, there are going to be proofs that are good enough for day to day use, right? They're gonna be they're gonna be cryptographic proofs where people are gonna be like, that's good enough. Like I see the, you know, I see the check mark, like I. Twitter check marks are definitely because about not Twitter. Anything because we were literally about but, twi Twitter but, when Mark Zuckerberg, no, not Mark, but Elon said that I'm going to fight Mark Zuckerberg for five minutes. I thought that was not real. I had to Google and be like, okay, is this it happening? Seems totally unreal. Yeah, so I think that's why we need crypto. Like even even in that case, we need crypto. If Elon signs that, okay, this was a transaction signed by myself, not by my manager, that actually means I'm, I'm interested in fighting. Right. So I think these types of things that are emerging on the internet. I think it would make our life easier if they had cryptographic proofs or if they yeah, were signed. Yeah, we definitely want to see. We want to see, like, okay, like, how can, what what are the systems that are backing up these statements, right? Like, did you did you do it from a biometric de device? And, like, you know, how, how, how can we be sure that this is actually the person making the claim? And so I, th I think increasingly we'll have to rely on cryptographic systems to give us that assurance, right? And and obviously, again, like cryptographic systems can be compromised, right? So it, I'm not saying it's a panacea. I'm just saying that it has to be better than today because today is bad. So make up part of this, I think you also asked me this question in terms of the convergence between AI and crypto. What are some of the other areas you see this convergence? And not just AI, maybe some of the other verticals uh, out there, maybe mixed reality. How do you kind of see all of these puzzles like fitting in and converging? Yeah, I mean, the thing that's fascinating about convergence, right, is that convergence is challenging because it requires timing around different technologies, right? So the thing that's really interesting about a seismic technology like AI is that part of the way to reason about investment in AI, I think you said something very, very subtle, which is that like, you know, you're not sure where your edge is in terms of the making the investments, which I think is very wise. So I think it's very wise to kind of have people really focus on what they know and invest where they know, right? But I do think that something of the scale of AI is important, right? And obviously, you know, we've seen really simple heuristics like next symbol, like when a chat GPT is trying to determine what the next symbol is. Right. We've determined that that scales like crazy. Right. If you throw compute and data at that thing, it will start to model things that we didn't think could be modeled this way. Right. Which is amazing. Right. It can do crazy things like 
it can uh if you do next symbol computation over chess games like chat gpt can learn how to play chess right which is sort of like how does it knowing the rules of chess just by trying to figure out what the next utterance should be like what what you know so it's sort of someone who's like what should i say what should i say right so it's like you should say like you know i'm gonna move my queen forward right like that's what you should say right it's kind of like and the whole rules of all of the games of chess have been digested by this machine now right so i guess what i'm really claiming is is that we're at a, such a fruitful time in something like ai right that it feels like the best reason the best way to invest is not necessarily to run out and invest in an ai company directly but really to think about how seismic of an impact will it have on society right so for example i was talking about things like identity civil resistance botnets right so like maybe there's opportunities to invest in verified you know identities and civil resistance right so i guess to me part of my mindset is trying to measure the size and the timings of things you know, and I think as a venture investor, I'm definitely interested in the four to seven year time frame. I mean, as a kind of science fiction fan, you know, I'm definitely interested in like far future time frames. I'm super interested in things like nuclear fusion, which I'm convinced isn't in the four to seven year window, although I'd love it for it to be. Um, Commonwealth Fusion thinks it is, but I disagree. Uh, you know, uh, my just a step way back from that, part of my logical conjecture is is that the emergence of viable commercial nuclear fusion would be such a seismic impact on society that if you were a u.s president you would ask the head of the department of energy when it's happening and if it's going to happen in during your administration you would try to take credit for it right so you would create this kind of moonshot fusion government program and then you would take credit for some commercial advancement right so because that isn't happening i'm conjecturing that it's not one administration span or even two away right so i, I just feel like that's 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 where we are we are where we are but like so i guess what i'm trying to do then is sort of reason about these time frames you know and and try to understand the patterns right so i, I would say that in terms of convergence like convergence is pretty exceptionally hard uh, you know, one of the things that happens is, is that you have convergent startups. So you have a convergent startup that's like, oh, I want to do, uh, you know, mixed reality with AI, with blockchain, right? And they, so the problem with those is that then they become beholden to the business timing and emergence of multiple major threads at the same time. So if any one of those major threads doesn't appear when they need it to appear, then as a company, they fail. Right. So that makes it exceedingly hard. Right. Uh, obviously, you know, these convergent startups do potentially create incredibly high returns if they're if they're correct about the business timing of every single major macro. Right. The other thing that I think happens, too, is that there is an attraction to playing the buzzword bingo game. And so, you know, there are kind of low conviction entrepreneurs that sort of chase buzzwords. And I think that's another danger or trap. Right. So I think that um, to me, it's better for you to invest in a pure play that kind of maybe has sort of an interest is, is maybe opportunistic and open-minded about the other track. So if you're an AI company that's opportunistic about blockchain, or if you're a blockchain company that's opportunistic about AI, that's better because then you're doing your core business, you're you're embracing the risk of your core business, which is maybe blockchain won't work, right? But then if blockchain does work and then all of a sudden AI starts working, you're actually in a neat spot because you're, you know, you, you've built your core business and you're, you're open-minded about the adjacency. So that, that thing works for me. I think the pure convergence plays are hard where it's sort of like my thing won't work unless all these other really major things work in the time frame that I want. So that, that's scary. Because this got me thinking maybe, um, so instead of playing that convergence, maybe one can focus more downstream. So maybe blockchain is the way to kind of play this convergence, where let's say if we have to prove everything is a deep fake through, 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 through that thing living on a blockchain or people signing, maybe identity, maybe blockchain, those could be the primitive to kind of play those. Yes, like as a yes. I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm a huge watcher of, 
uh, Microsoft. I think they're an incredibly clever company under uh, Satya Nadella. And like they're making tremendous investments into building decentralized identity technology, right? And they're buying like Activision Blizzard and gaming and they're investing in open AI, right? So like they are very smart about like, uh, you know, the future, right? And what the future may hold. So I think your idea of like, Maybe the way to invest in AI is to invest in certain aspects of blockchain, right? Things like cryptographic provers, ZK provers, you know, uh, things. So these types of like themes within blockchain become much more accessible in a world that's impacted by AI, right? I think gaming is impacted by AI in the sense that like gaming is sort of the last ultra scalable AI resistant business, right? Which is that, um, you know, if, 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 a billion people, knowledge workers lose their jobs, right? They could potentially create entertainment and they'll most certainly consume entertainment, right? So, you know, so I think that will be pretty endless. And they may use AIs to create maps and they may create in-game items and they may create. So there may be like AIs will be involved and will probably take away jobs in entertainment. But I think there will always be jobs in entertainment because, and, and there will be more and more because people want more and more entertainment. Like if they don't have regular jobs, they're going to want more entertainment and more people will become themselves entertainers in, in various ways. So Miko, I'm, I'm cognizant of your time uh, and, and to kind of conclude the podcast, how can I, how can our followers uh, follow you and kind of get the download of your thinking, maybe through your podcast, maybe through your Twitter, maybe through your writing. Uh, please kind of feel free Absolutely. To... All of those things, uh, you can jump from my website, miko.com, M-I-K-O.com. And you can find my Twitter there, my LinkedIn, and you can find my YouTube uh, podcast. So you can find everything uh, right off of miko.com. All right, Miko, amazing. Thank you so much for coming. I thoroughly enjoyed our conversation uh, on, on different facets of uh, blockchain and even AI. Uh, so again, thank you very much for coming. Thanks so much. This podcast is for information purposes only and should not be considered as financial advice. Any opinions provided in this podcast reflect the views of the speakers only.